Niebuhr and Virtue Ethics, coming up on Love Thy Niebuhr. You're listening to the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Road Niebuhr. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of the Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey. I'm joined as always by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Good to have you back, Aaron. Thank you. And it's good to be back. I tell you what, you uh, you could probably still hear it in my voice, but I got crazy sick over the past three weeks. Started off with some virus. It wasn't COVID. I was tested six times, never tested positive. I had a fever. And then week two, it turned into, you know, doctors told me either bronchitis or pneumonia. So I was down for the count for a while. And we had a lot of plans, uh, big plans for the podcast that we had to put on hold. Kevin, our guest today, had had the worst of it. He got rescheduled on three times. So. That's right. Our current <laughs> guest was very gracious um, in rescheduling twice. Uh, Twice, three times. You three, say three times, times? yeah. Oh man. So we w- we want to thank everybody um, and Kevin. Um, <laughs> Maximum Niebuhr. But let's let's hop to it. Today's guest is Dr. Kevin Carnahan. He's associate professor of philosophy and religion at Central Methodist University in Missouri. He is author of many works uh, and one of the editors of an exciting new work called Paradoxical Virtue, Reinhold Niebuhr and the virtue tradition. I've had many people, um, former guests, sending this to us, saying, well, you guys got to read this. Um, and so we finally got around to uh, to picking this up and uh, and getting the editors on. We'll have our the second editor, uh, David True, on next episode. But today we're with uh, Kevin. So Kevin, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Now, in preparation for this discussion, uh, we, the hosts, have read Kevin's essay in this book and come up with uh, some questions for him. I'll start, and then Zach, and then Aaron, and around we'll go for about an hour, and then we'll wrap it up. So, Kevin, um, for my first question, uh, tell me about this project generally. Where and how was this thought baby conceived, and what was the process of giving birth to it? Yeah. Sorry, sorry so, for the gestational metaphor. Yeah, no, no, no. That's, that's fine. Um, so I, I think that one of the problems with Reinhold Niebuhr has been figuring out where he sits in the context of ethical theory over time. Um, a lot of people um, traditionally have settled him something. He's clearly not a deontologist. He's clearly not like a rules-based Kantian right. or anything like that. Um, and so a lot of people, given the, the usual breakdown, have said, oh, he's he's some type of utilitarian, like he's some type of right, consequentialist. Um, and and so it's been very common to put Niebuhr into kind of a, a consequentialist um, framework. And uh, those of us who are Niebuhr scholars, um, a lot of us have been kind of frustrated with that. I mean, number one, there's a set of stock criticisms of kind of consequentialism that Niebuhr doesn't fall easily into. And uh, second of all, although he lies before like the development of narrative theology and narrative ethics, 
Um, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that he's doing. Um, he's definitely doing a kind of ethics that is definitively drawing on a Christian tradition as opposed to drawing on reason as the basis for what he's mm -hmm. doing. And uh, he's drawing on the symbols of that tradition to do what he's doing. Um, now, that put us, that suggested to us that he falls more in virtue. But um, there's a whole, number one, he's got a whole critique of virtue, um, especially because of his doctrine of sin, the idea that people could be good enough as people at some point right. to be moral um, just seems problematic. And then from the virtue tradition, there's been a long critique of Niebuhr, especially as the virtue tradition emerged in the United States. It emerged from a, a kind of communitarian basis with the central figures like Stanley Hauerwas, um, who associated virtue ethics with pacifism and with a kind of communitarianism that Niebuhr didn't fit into. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, he seems like he's more like narrative virtue. On the other hand, there are these mutual critiques between him and the virtue tradition that makes him sit in a kind of weird place if you want to say he's more like a virtue ethicist. Time out. Okay, so in the process of editing this, I realized we have two episodes that discuss Niebuhr and virtue ethics, and never once did we explain what virtue ethics is. I'm so sorry. Since this is a podcast that is uh, targeted to pastors and academics alike, I realize that it's, uh, it's very possible some of us have either never studied virtue ethics or maybe need a small refresher. So here's a quick, definitely over oversimplified breakdown. You just heard Kevin bring up deontology, consequentialism, utilitarianism, things he says Niebuhr is definitely not. Those focus on the rightness or wrongness of actions in a given situation. Think trolley problem. Should I let the trolley go and let it kill five people or pull the switch and actively kill one person to save the five? What's right and what's wrong given a situation? That's what those systems are most focused on. But unlike those, what Kevin is suggesting Niebuhr is here, virtue ethics is more focused on the person or the character of a person. First, think about a truly excellent person. When it comes to, say, competitive sports, and I'm a little bit biased here, I think of the two Cincinnati Joes, Joey Votto and Joe Burrow. These athletes are excellent, not just because they made this play or that play, and really not even statistics get to the fundamentals of what makes these two people excellent human beings. So then what does? Their habits. In other words, their virtues. So what are some virtues we see in these excellent individuals? Well, we could spend all day listing them off. The two Cincinnati Joes are both hardworking, they're students of their respective sports, and there's even a certain psychology they both have. If you listen to either player give extensive interviews, they almost sound like stoic philosophers. Focus on what you can control, expect failure, learn from failure, guard yourself against contentment, guard yourself against excitement, don't be too driven by emotion. The two Cincinnati Joes weirdly have many of the same habits, physically and psychologically. I mean, it's freaky. And this type of thing gets a guy like Aristotle to start thinking, maybe there's a unity here. And more than just a unity, maybe this unity of habits we find among excellent people is something baked into nature itself, and those who study it 
can actually find it and realize it more and more. And when we start zooming in on some of these specific virtues, we find it's less about right and wrong behavior, rightness and wrongness, and more about finding a balance, having a character that seeks the balance. So for instance, in the middle of Two Twin Traps is the virtue of courage. Every excellent individual has courage, Aristotle says, but it's easier said than done. On the one hand, if you don't have enough courage, you're a coward. However, on the other hand, if you're too zealous in your courage, if you have too much courage, you're just an idiot. Someone who runs into a burning building to save people without proper equipment or a plan to get out, that's not a courageous person, that's just a moron. And walking this line for a virtue ethicist, say between the twin traps of cowardice on the one hand and idiocy on the other, Traditionally, walking the, this fine line has a particular name, or we can call it a, sur a super virtue, and that is moderation. Never taking the extreme, always finding that happy middle. And this virtue of moderation isn't just some happy medium even, but for many, it is baked into nature, not unlike the golden mean. And the golden mean is, of course, that seemingly naturally occurring sequence or structure found in how flowers bloom, ocean waves break, or even the curvature of the current in your toilet bowl as the water flushes. It's seemingly found either consciously or subconsciously or unconsciously in structures of music, from Bach and Beethoven to Beatles and the Beach Boys. So this episode and the, and the episode following are going to be focused on Niebuhr as a potential virtue ethicist, focused on the character of a person. This first episode here with Kevin is on how his anthropology provides a powerful basis for the excellent person, and the next episode will analyze whether Niebuhr himself is an excellent person worthy of emulation, kind of like the two Cincinnati Joes. Okay, back to the pod. Uh, now, um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, and this is one of the things actually that the that the book is intended to um, to highlight and and kind of fight out. So, for instance, um, Charles Matthews has one of the essays in the book where he, from a Niebuhrian standpoint, basically says, "No, Niebuhr's not a virtue ethicist." <laughs> he says he's definitely a kind of dispositional ethicist. But he wants to make a distinction between that and the virtue tradition and say, because of these critiques, Niebuhr doesn't fit into the virtue tradition. Um, most of the other figures in the book want to make, uh, we disagree with uh, Chuck about exactly how he locates the, the virtue tradition, um, want to make a more robust claim that Niebuhr can fit into kind of virtue ethics. But I mean, we all recognize that there's significant tensions in there. So it's an interesting question. And as Dave and I uh, got talking about these things, we said, this would be really cool. Um, we want to set up an opportunity for scholars to have, you know, a say on this. And we gathered together a bunch of people and had a, kind of a small conference uh, about it at one point and used uh, the meetings of the Niebuhr Society to have some more people give papers. And then we gathered them together into uh, this volume. So that's the that's the origin of it. Now, you said... Um something about narrative and mm -hmm. i think that uh is robin levin i've read this in um your mentors is former supervisor correct yep my um, dissertation supervisor i think that i read him saying niebuhr was a proto-narrative theologian or something mm -hmm. like that do you think that's a fair characterization i think it is i think niebuhr's in a slightly different tradition from 
uh, like Hauerwas as a narrative. Like Hauerwas is drawing on a particular developed account of, of narrative theology. Um, I think what Niebuhr is drawing on is a Protestant tradition that uses the symbols of the Christian tradition in order to understand life. Mm. And that's a little bit different from what you would think of with Hauerwas and, and narrative tradition. Um, and, and I think they're, they're separable, but it's the same kind of thing. I think that both he and his brother and uh, all the way back to Calvin and Luther would do where they draw on symbols like God as judge, like the goodness of creation, um, where they draw on the symbol of redemption, where they draw on the symbol of sin, and they want to understand the world through those frameworks, through those those kind of you know thoughts, and that that's the thing that doesn't fit well if you just move over into analytic ethics, right. if you move over into like Kant or utilitarianism. Um, we don't have a, 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 as we get into the the more particulars. There's it's not exactly. Um, like narrative theology as it developed uh, in the, the time after Niebuhr came along. But it's much more similar to that than it is to any of the traditions of kind of Anglo, uh, you know, analytic ethics that had come along in the, well, in the meantime. I, I think, though, that there's there's a shared genesis in a way um, that I think we could say that Richard was part of the Yale school that brought in post-liberalism and mm -hmm. and he derived a lot of his influence from Tillich and the symbolic meaning of things which is also yeah. where Reinhold got it so it seems like yeah. there's a shared history there at least yeah I think that's that's true um and especially in in some of their uh, engagement between the two and some of the places that actually separated Richard from Reinhold um they of course had this big uh debate when there was the invasion of China uh, in the uh, in the run up to um, World War II about uh, the grace of doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, Richard articulated a vision of Christianity that was uh, a Christian Christianity that came together in small kind of pods and communities where um, you shared the Christian narrative, and then it looked to the outside world like you were doing nothing, although what you were doing was living in a new way. Now, Reinhold at the time kind of said, no, nah, that's BS. Um, <laughs> this is, that's not enough. We need to be active out in the world at times. And this is, of course, in the run-up to World War II, and he's seeing the rise of Germany. He's seeing, you know, Japanese imperialism and Niebuhr's saying, look, uh, that sounds great, living in little communities and living the Christian life. Yeah, I, sure, that's wonderful. But we also need to be ready to participate in the world and go out and defend particular values in the world in a way that I don't see that model getting us to. And so the grace of your doing nothing just doesn't seem enough for me. I don't think it's that they actually disagreed on like that that was a good thing, but they did have a different view or a different emphasis on uh, how the Christian related to the world and the extent to which the Christian needed to be active in defending particular values in the world, mm -hmm. especially if that involved dirty hands as it were right. um so, so reinhold was basically a defender of the narrative but not 
a defender of the purity of the narrative, I guess. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think the way that I think the way that I I would want to put it is that Niebuhr is always a, always after paradox. Um, and so I think that Niebuhr thinks that in order to live out the the uh, Christian narrative, you can't live like Christ all the time. I mean, there is this there's a there's a paradox there mm -hmm. that like. So as, as I say, everybody, you know, they had the, the like, what would you do? What would Jesus do? Right. Bracelets that they used to wear. Right. And I always said Niebuhr's answer to that is what would Jesus do? Jesus would save the whole world by dying on the cross. You can't do that. <laughs> right. So the, the question can't be right. What would Jesus do? The question has to be, what should you do given that you're not Jesus? Right. Um, and and that means that you live in the light of what Jesus did. You live in the light of the eschaton and perfect loving community, and you try and bring about a, a relative realization of that under your own conditions. But you also, as part of the Christian narrative, realize you're not God, right. and you can't do everything that God was trying to do, what God did actually achieve doing eschatologically. He, um, and, and, in fact, it can be, and in fact, it can be a sin. Uh, trying to be yeah. God. I mean, the clearest example is the United States trying to be a messianic figure or yeah. you know, uh, your self-righteousness can actually be a hindrance to the world. Well, and, right. that, and the, the truth is, I mean, it, it, it doesn't make a lot, it doesn't make a catchy enough acronym, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you, it's, it's very complicated, right? Uh, to, don't do what Jesus would do because you're not Jesus. No, there's too many letters that you end up getting into. We should try um, though. If you do that. That's right. Um, no, I, I think that's right. And I think actually there's a lot of the Christian tradition um, that that is that has been very similar. I mean, so, so Niebuhr's not original in this. In some ways, he's drawing on Augustine, who's doing very similar things, um, who, yeah, of course, you know, Jesus brings about peace. But that doesn't mean that we're in a position that we can always be peaceable um, because it turns out that Jesus, by dying on the cross, brings about peace and justice for everyone. We often have to choose between peace and justice, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, even in the tradition that separated out like politics from church in early Christianity. Um, Jesus was both emperor and priest. But in Christianity in the West, they they divided between, say, the pope and the emperor because they said, look, you know what? Jesus might have been emperor and priest, but. We can't be both of those things right. at the same time. Um, and going back even to uh, Paul, I think in the um, in Corinthians, he's talking to a group of people who believe that they've been transformed. They've achieved the goal of Christianity. And uh, some of them think, oh, you know what? We should all abandon our marriage because now we live as perfect Christians. And then it turns out that some of them are going and sleeping with prostitutes. And uh, and Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I get it. I get it. You you think that you, your lives should be new and wonderful and all that. But maybe, no, maybe go get married so that at least, you know, when you have sex, it's just with your wife. Uh, you know, is that perfect? No, it'd be much better if you could live without, you know, uh, all that. But yeah, okay. Um, you're probably not capable of that. So, so you know, uh, there's there's this tension between uh, the ideal in Christianity and 
what Christianity has to mean under uh, non-ideal circumstances all the way from the beginning. Um, Niebuhr kind of takes that uh, that tension and makes it into the center of his theology. Mm. Um, so not everybody does that, but he's drawing on a long Christian tradition. And I think that's another place where Levin has this right that uh, Christian realism can be read as a tradition going all the way across Christianity. And Niebuhr is kind of uh, a particular representative of the tradition. He highlights it, um, but he's not actually originating. Mm. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to definitely get into this chapter. Um, and I want to just jump right into uh, right, right into it. Um, I would maybe you could tell us a little bit about like kind of if you wanted to give us a little bit of an overview of your thoughts on the chapter and why you ended up. But the, the question that I have for you is and the, the chapters on justice, you, you talked about over and over again that Niebuhr's concept is that he's trying to make room for judgment. He's trying to leave a room, a space for judgment. Um, and one of the questions that come, has come up over and over and over on this podcast, and especially at the very beginning, because we were talking about war and things like that, is we were wondering if this ability to make room for judgment is a luxury of leadership that is actually sometimes detrimental when you're talking about trying to motivate a massive group of people, millions of people to act on something, to, to say, mm -hmm. okay, we have, we have to go to war and this isn't going to be a perfect thing. We're not going to remain innocent, but we got to act. And it's, it's pressing. It's right now. And so I guess my question is with that, yeah, the, with that concept of making room for justice is that, can it be detrimental? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, yes. I mean, Niebuhr is always, as a matter of fact, I think Niebuhr accepts that it can be detrimental. The same space that is left for good and creative judgment is also the space that is open for sin and abuse. Um, and I don't think that Niebuhr has a solution to that. And it, in part, what Niebuhr is, is trying to say is that there, we're too quick oftentimes to come to solutions for that. So uh, just, just to back up and to say something about the, the approach to the chapter. Um, Niebuhr is, is rejecting a couple of different pictures of justice. Um, one is a picture that says that justice is like mathematics, like there is a formula for justice that works itself out and all we need to do is figure out how to apply it uh, in particular circumstances. He wants to say justice is not just reason working itself out. There's another place where Niebuhr is going to be in tension with the, uh, the kind of analytic tradition. He's not a Kantian, right? Kant wants to give you and the utilitarians want to give you a formula for justice. Either justice is... Uh, kind of the bringing about the greatest happiness of the greatest number or justice is realizing the categorical imperative. And Niebuhr wants to say, no, it's, it's not really either one of those things. He also wants to say that justice is not just uh, doing what our inclination tells us to. It's not just nature driving us to someplace um, in the kind of way that Adam Smith with uh, the, the invisible hand comes in and says, well, if everybody just does what they uh, most desire, the market will sort that all out and it'll be fine, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Niebuhr, I, as I read him, is exactly trying to provide space in the sense that he wants to block off both of those. He wants to say, 
No, because his worry is that if we accept either one of those approaches, we won't be critical about the approach itself. Mm-hmm. That we won't be able to ask questions about if we're a Kantian, right, we might come to the conclusion, for instance, famously, uh, Kant says, well, you should never lie. Um, and then the question comes up, well, hold on, if the if the Nazis show up to our house and we're hiding Anne Frank and they say, hey, are you hiding any Jews in your house? Mm-hmm. Kant has to say, well, yes, I am hiding Jews right. in my house. Um, and I think Niebuhr wants to say, hold up, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> uh, that wouldn't be a just thing to do. That's not that's not the right uh, that's not the right approach to this, right? Um, we we actually are able to be critical about our reason. We're we're able to recognize that there are places where that equation has taken us to the wrong conclusion. And with the the invisible hand, we need space to be able to say, you know what. Um, uh, we've all been following our, our own best interests and the market isn't sorting it out. The market is not actually imposing a, a better way of doing this. So when I say that Niebuhr wants to provide space for judgment, uh, what I mean is I think he wants to cut off both of those kind of alternatives to say, to keep us critical and to say human beings have this remarkable ability which is to stand outside of ourselves. Say, if I am the person who's the Kantian, right, and I'm running the equations in my head to get what's right, I can still step outside of myself and look back at myself doing those equations and say, you know what, I think the equation is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Or if I'm the person who's, who's trying to follow my intuitions, the naturalist, I can step outside of myself and look back and say, you know what, I think my intuitions, my, my instincts, might be wrong. Um, I might I might have that. And so he's trying to provide that space. Now, part of the problem is that he recognizes it would be great if our ability to step outside of ourselves could only be used for good. Um, that, that our ability to step outside were always used to say both on the one hand, uh, you know what, I, I wasn't doing the right thing. And I ought to come up with a more creative and and productive way of channeling my vitality um, so that I produce a greater good. Um, but part of the deal with stepping outside of ourselves is the is sin as well, um, mm-hmm. because it's our ability to transcend ourselves that also makes us look back at ourselves and say, you know what? Um, not only do I see that things could be better, but I think I can do that. I think I can make everything better all by myself. Right. And to imagine ourselves as if we're able to do all that or to look back on ourselves and say, uh, you know what? I don't know anything. I should, I should just stop. I should give up in this process, right? Um, and so our ability to step outside of ourselves, that same space that allows us to be creative and productive is also the same thing that allows us to create much bigger problems than uh, originally existed. And, and then you have to sort that out, right? Uh, isn't, it's never yeah, so, well, I was just saying, isn't there a, a special risk of indi- becoming indecisive there, though? Like, yeah. isn't there a special risk of inaction? And yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. So Niebuhr, Niebuhr also uh, kind of addresses this problem in multiple different ways. On the one hand, he says, this is exactly what you point out is one of the problems of mysticism. 
which says, which steps outside of itself, gets transcendence, right? Says, oh, we're able to step outside of ourselves, but then says, you know what? We should just run away into transcendence. We should just, we should just enjoy these moments of like feeling uh, beyond ourselves and uh, yeah, let's just try and escape the world, right? Um, and Niebuhr wants to say, no, no, we don't want to, we don't want to do that either. Um, and the, the possibility of stepping outside of yourselves and just becoming so self-critical about yourself. And one of the things that should happen when you look back at yourself from the outside is you should be convicted of sin, according to Niebuhr. You should recognize that you're part of the problem. That's, that's one of the things we're able to do. But it's entirely possible that that just makes us catatonic, right? Mm-hmm. That that's just like, oh, my God, I'm part of the problem. I should just stop doing anything uh, in order to do this. And I think Niebuhr's answers to to those questions, I mean, number one, he doesn't have a complete answer to those questions because he thinks part of that's right, right? I mean, part of that is we're all producing our own problems as well. But uh, part of his answer is theological, um, that he wants to say the difference between uh, the mystic and what he imagines the Christian being is that the mystic imagines a God that is fundamentally apart from the world a God that is fundamentally different from the world. Whereas the Christian claims that the God who is the source of transcendence is also the source of all the particularity of the world, is also the source of the vitality and order of the world. Mm -hmm. And so he wants to say, you can't run away into mysticism if you're a Christian, because the Christian recognizes the God who is recognizing you, allowing you to step outside of yourself is the same God who's creating the systems in which you live and who wants the systems in which you live to be harmonious. And so his theological answer to that is that you're kind of, you're, you're caught between these. You have, you can't escape them. And this goes back to that discussion that he had with H. Richard earlier on, Mm -hmm. where H. Richard wanted to say, well, maybe we should get in these small groups and just live Christian lives. And Niebuhr's answer, as he's developed it theologically by the time he's he's in his mature period is, well, yeah, but God's also the God of the world where Japan is invading China, where Germany is like uh, eradicating Jews. And that means that God has to be active in those places. And God wants us to be active in that process. And that means we can't just be convicted of sin. We also have to make particular judgments. We also have to make particular judgments about what's relatively better and relatively worse. I mean, so it's true. The United States and Germany are both sinful nations. And yet, uh, Hitler's worse. I mean, (laughs) he wants to say both of those things are true, right? As we step outside of ourselves, we look back and we recognize, in part as Americans, we created the Nazis. Um, After World War I, right, uh, there was a punitive peace agreement which caused uh, economic strife in Germany and led to the rise of the Nazis. We can see that when we step outside of ourselves that we are in part responsible for this. But we can't allow that to lead us to ignore the relative differences between the evils of the United States and the evils of Nazi Germany. So 
So, and, and this has to do with the fact that on the one hand, God is the God of transcendence, but God is also the God of the particularities in the world. And because Niebuhr sees the human as, as kind of caught between those two, yes, you have to, you have, to have that moment of transcendence. Um, that's necessary for creativity. And you have to be involved in the particular moment and make relative judgments about what that transcendence requires for us in the nitty gritty of life. And he and and beyond tragedy, he comes up with a very helpful way of of thinking about this: the God of the Ark and the God of the Temple, or uh, the the priest and the prophet. Um, and mm -hmm. he he uses Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address as uh, an example worthy of imitation. Um, yeah. Of at the same time that he's saying, "Shall we?" Uh, ring from our brother sweat our bread or whatever Lincoln says there against slavery. But at the same time, he's saying God has his own purposes. So God is both beyond, but God is still here. Like it, yep. it might be relative here, but yep. God, is, God still needs to be uh, addressed here. Um, yep. Now, if, if I could step back for a moment, because we are getting kind of abstract, um, <laughs> but I, I think I think though that there's a way of grounding this that you brilliantly do in this essay. I love when people work with Niebuhr and they start with nature and destiny, and they start with anthropology. Um, so to put some bones on kind of what you were discussing about Adam Smith on the one hand and idealism on the other, or something like that. Mm -hmm. What we're basically saying is. Aristotle's conception of the rational animal is invalid in a lot of ways because we're always trying to subordinate one to the other. Whether our animalistic desire, we're trying to subordinate to reason, mm -hmm. or our rational side, we're trying to subordinate to our animalistic desires. But this really actually just negates what we fundamentally are. And we're trying to too simply answer the question of, and this is the central question of nature and destiny, who are we? Um, mm -hmm. We are we are vexated in every way, and the and the more that we try to resolve it, the more we find ourselves caught in this riddle. Um, mm -hmm. And so, I I I just wanted to I I just think that's a very helpful way of understanding the nub of Niebuhr Niebuhr's nub, you know, <laughs> and that is, you know, and that is that you know we can talk about justice and all these. Uh, kind of abstract terms and we can critique them as they're commonly seen in society but what it really comes down to is how are we viewing ourselves and are we escaping the self into some new function where we are flattening ourselves out and relieving ourselves of responsibility yeah i and i would say it's not just neighbor i mean what he's doing there is drawing on an augustinian tradition that that really from uh, augustine all through Kierkegaard and to Niebuhr, um, where they're, they're trying to, uh, to understand the strange nature of humanity. Um, Augustine has this, this fascinating thing where he talks about when you're singing a hymn and the fact that when you're singing a hymn, you, on the one hand, there, there's the singing that's passed, right? Which is set and it's done. And then there's the singing to come. And the singing to come is like you don't actually know the words. Um, as you're singing, you're focused on the, the words at any particular moment. And as you go, you trust that the words in the, are, for the rest of the verse are going to come to you, mm -hmm. right? Um, and human beings are these strange things that are kind of strung out 
across this between the, the settled past and the hoped for future. And we're right in the present moment thinking, I hope I know the words when they come to me, right? Mm -hmm. I hope that when the next moment comes, I will sing the right words, I will say the right words with no guarantee that you're actually, I mean, there are times when the word entirely escapes you and you're just, you're lost at that moment, right? Um, and so human beings are these weird people that are kind of suspended between these uh, these different moments. And we have to figure out how to exist in that moment. And for both, for Augustine, for Kierkegaard, and for Niebuhr, the answer is theological. The answer is, for, for Augustine, it is that we, we live as, we're never the main character in our own story, right? Mm -hmm. It's God is telling a story, and our story only makes sense from God's perspective, uh, as God tells our story. The same thing for Kierkegaard, that uh, in some sense, uh, as Kierkegaard's looking at things as the modern world is like breaking down, Kierkegaard wants to say, look, uh, the solution to, to kind of postmodern um, angst and loss is to realize, yeah, of course you have angst. It's because you aren't God, right? That's, that's the position that you're in. You're caught between these things. And Niebuhr is working that, that same anthropology out, um, trying to say, yeah, human beings, we always want to have that security, but we're always that person singing that hymn, not sure what, whether the next word's going to come to us yeah. or not. And then the question is, are we able to find a place where we can be comfortable in that or sufficiently comfortable in that angst mm -hmm. that we can turn it into creativity or in that anxiety of the moment do we freak out try and say oh no i'm gonna make up the rest of the words so that, right. so that i can so that i'm absolutely certain of this and that you know falls you know, falls us over into uh the problem of sin but it's exactly it is that all the way from augustine through kierkegaard to niebuhr um it's this it's it's a theological thing and it's both it's so and this is another thing that i uh so there's a lot of times when theologians from that narrative tradition will say that niebuhr starts from anthropology and not theology which i think gets it wrong um because niebuhr's anthropology is thoroughly theological the way that he sees the human being located is drawing on that augustinian kierkegaardian tradition so that the human being only really makes sense in the context of the divine narrative that's given. Yeah. Transcendence makes sense in the sense of being known by a God who knows you more than you know yourself. Yes. And so that's what opens up the possibility of stepping outside of the self and looking back at the self is because you are the being that is caught between that, that uh, rational animal and the divine. And so, so it's, you are not just the rational animal, right? right? Because you're kind of suspended between that and the transcendent. I love yeah. the, uh, I love, I think it's book 10 of Confessions that Niebuhr relies a lot, a lot on where Augustine, this is the most beautifully written passage in Western civilization, I think. Um, so Augustine has us consider the storehouse of our mind. And the infinite memories, like you can, you can close your eyes and you can imagine smelling lilies. You can draw in all these things. The mind is this beautiful 
unending storehouse. And yet, and, and then you can think about the thinker. Yeah. And this is that standing outside of the self part. You can think about the thinker, but you, but Augustine gets to this final question, but who am I? Oh God, mm -hmm. who am I? And that is that position that Niebuhr calls homelessness or like mm -hmm. you're stuck without being able to comprehend who you are, even though you're standing outside of yourself, you need some transcendent perspective to, mm -hmm. and he says, this is the root of all religion is we need some transcendent perspective to give our lives meaning or you just can't find it. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even the language of standing outside of yourself, yeah. right, indicates that a kind of homelessness in this position, um, because we identify ourselves so much with nature and reason, right? Um, and I do think that that's, this is one of the major differences between uh, St. Niebuhr and that Augustinian tradition. And so much of um, what happens in Roman Catholic ethics, um, in uh, Enlightenment ethics, um, which still identifies transcendence with reason or identifies mm -hmm. transcendence with instinct, where Niebuhr in that Augustinian tradition wants to say, no, that's not transcendence. That's confusing one of these imminent poles of the self with transcendence. Mm -hmm. And transcendence has to be something more than that. And that's exactly the space that I want to argue that Niebuhr is opening up for judgment. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I, uh, part of part of what I'm doing here is to raise the question, which I get to by the end of the chapter, in how radical can judgment be for Niebuhr? Um, because I think one of the other problems, and this, is, this was also raised uh, earlier in our discussion, um, is that Niebuhr's uh, approach, because it's tied to this self-criticism, because it's tied to this realism, can come across as overly conservative. Mm -hmm. um, that, so, so the question is, like, do you ever have impetus for fighting for something that's radically different than what the world looks like right mm -hmm. now? Um, and this was this is a, a serious problem for Niebuhr as he dealt with um, racial injustice in his own time uh, and has been thoroughly critiqued for his uh, his qualifications on that. Right. Um, there were as they were looking at, at integrating schools and things like that. Niebuhr wasn't sure that that was the right move. He worried about white backlash to integration um, because he, you know, he wants to say, okay, but what's possible in this in this instance, right? That 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 moment that takes him back from saying, oh, yeah, we know what's right, we should go and do it, um, takes him back, and he says, I'm worried about white backlash. Now, actually, I kind of wonder if with what we see um, in recent politics, if he wasn't right, just off by several decades, right? There is a white backlash uh, that mm -hmm. comes about in this, but he was wrong in that. No, that was absolutely the right thing to do, right? Um, he, you know, you needed a more kind of radical uh, opening for judgment than Niebuhr was able to allow for himself in that moment. Um, he, he suggested maybe uh, kind of anti-lynching legislation was what you should have gone with because that would have been like uh, a more, you could have gotten everybody on board. Um, and and this, is, this is the thing is, I want to argue that actually Niebuhr's system as an opening for um, this radical judgment um, 
that he doesn't always put into place, and especially across between the 50s and the 60s, um, he's not as open to radical judgment as we at times wish that he had been. Um, and there are reasons for that. But, uh, but this is one of the things. I wanna, I wanna make the argument that Niebuhr opens up that space for judgment and that he's doing so in a way that depends on the person being able to make these decisions. And that doesn't mean being a good person, but it means being, I guess we could say a responsible person mm -hmm. um, in the world. And that's kind of what justice as a virtue looks like for neighbor. Okay, I've just said a whole bunch. So Wait, <laughs> uh, that reminds me actually of another realist, arguably Machiavelli, where he says, you need to be, you need to be willing to brave infamy. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's at times Niebuhr can obviously say this is this is complicated because when Niebuhr makes his arguments for war, what he's doing in part is embracing the idea that the possibilities are more limited than the idealist will often think they are. So an idealist might say, oh, but we could we could solve the problem of Nazi Germany if only we were peaceable and we stood up to Nazi Germany by moral force. Uh, Gandhi occasionally said these things looking back at, at Hitler. And I think Niebuhr at that point wants to say, yeah, that's that's not realistic. Like uh, that was not going to happen, that, that Hitler was going to fall to the same kind of moral pressure that the, the Empire of England was going to fall to. Right. Um, and in that, I don't think so Niebuhr is, on the one hand, being radical in comparison to idealists there, but he's not being radical in the same way, say, that he was in Moral Man and Immoral Society. Mm -hmm. um, moral Man and Immoral Society is a much more radical Niebuhr, um, where he, that's where he lays the groundwork for Martin Luther King Jr., that uh, that King will eventually find and pick up on and be like, yeah, this is what we should do. Now, later Niebuhr, by the time Niebuhr was alive at the same time as Martin Luther King Jr., Niebuhr appreciated Martin Luther King Jr., but I'm not sure, uh, he, he, he would not have predicted Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. He would not have predicted Martin Luther King Jr. and the success of Martin Luther King Jr.'s movement in the way that it happened. Um, whereas Niebuhr in the 1930s, could imagine that and was in fact advocating for it in a way that he kind of falls out during the 1950s and 60s. Um, and there's a whole set of reasons I think that that happens in Niebuhr's thought. Um, but I want to argue that the Niebuhr of the 30s could still be a Niebuhrian today. Mm. Um, there are ways that you can go back and you can reclaim that kind of more radical Niebuhrian opening for judgment um, today in politics. Maybe uh, even Niebuhr would be more radical today, I think, than he was in the 1950s and 1960s. So I'm sorry for the really broad question, but um, much of Christian history connects truth and justice. Truth is recititude. And this is where I'm trying to link it to Niebuhr here for a second. I know Niebuhr is within this realist tradition and pragmatic tradition where what is true is what works in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we do have some experiences where people, uh, you know, maybe they can't see the eschatological goal, the 
the the hope they don't have the hope they're not grounded within that and so maybe they lack the creativity and imagination to to see those things um so my, my question is to you for Niebuhr is truth justice and if that's the case I know it's relativized for him but what is the substance of justice if it's not balance of power and if we mm-hmm. um continually uh, you know screw it up yeah so I, I think that's a great that's a great question so Niebuhr is you're exactly right uh tied to both the realist tradition and the pragmatic tradition and those traditions have tendencies to collapse truth and justice into simply what works. Mm-hmm. Um, and Niebuhr at times, you know, this is definitely a part of his account of justice, right? Um, that justice requires that we have balances of power so that different um, groups in society can hold each other accountable in particular ways. Um, so for instance, one of the problems in the United States would have been that blacks didn't have enough power because if blacks had enough power, they would have been able to use that power in order to hold whites accountable and thus would have produced a greater sense of justice, even though neither one of the groups in itself is just, right? Both of them are fighting for their own interests. There's a kind of realist approach to things, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Everybody's fighting for their own interests. And so as long as you balance the power amongst them, then they're produced relative equality because they'll, they'll have relative equality in enforcing their own positions. Mm-hmm. And as you said, in the pragmatic tradition, right, uh, truth can be collapsed into simply what works in the present. And I think Niebuhr is in his realist moments, right, very tied into those traditions. But this is also where in his theological moments, he mm-hmm. is not a classical realist or a classical pragmatist. Because he believes in the possibility of transcendence, there is, he doesn't want to leave, uh, in some sense, uh, Plato, if we go back to Plato, right? Plato says, well, the world is always the appearance of things as opposed to the real, which is the ideal. Um, And so we have like the forms of things, the forms of chairs, as opposed to this Mm -hmm. crappy thing that I'm sitting on right now. Um, And Niebuhr is, is still in some ways in that tradition, in that what he believes is ultimately real is the kingdom. What he believes is ultimately real is love. Mm -hmm. What he believes is ultimately real is what Christ did. Now, in the world in which we live, we have to try and figure out how do you approximate that reality in the kind of crass, imperfect uh, situation that we're in. Right now, for him, of course, it's not a problem of material as opposed to ideal. It's a problem of a world that's stained by sin as opposed to the harmony that's that's ideal in the divine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that it's 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 a very similar thing in that our question is always how do we approximate the the kingdom of brotherly brotherly love in a sinful world. And there, so there, what he's going to do is he's going to say, okay, so where pragmatism comes in is in the question, how do we approximate, right? But he's never a, he's never a pragmatist in that he entirely collapses the Mm -hmm. ideal into what's possible at this moment, right? Mm -hmm. And he thinks that that would be a mistake because if we did that, then we would lose the possibility of that creativity. 
we would lose our connection to the transcendent, which constantly makes us, if we are being pragmatic about it, turn around and say, ah, but our pragmatic, what we thought was pragmatic in this instance wasn't enough. Like we should never be happy with what it is that we end up producing right in in the actual sinful world so so yes he's he's a realist and he's a pragmatist when it comes to questions about okay what can we do right now right what what can we achieve because we have to recognize we're always doing approximations but he also wants to hold on to that ideal that real the truth and the just that's beyond Mm -hmm. uh the particulars of the world and that pragmatic judgment because to put it in anthropological terms we can't subordinate the self to some kind of external rationality or we lose that essential radical responsibility um we become flattened out and we just do what you can write up on a board yeah yeah and and sometimes he uses the language of justice to exactly make this contrast right um not the way that i use it in the chapter but he says okay there's there's love which is that transcendent and then there's justice which is like the calculation of what we can do in order to balance off things against each other in the world right um i'm i'm using justice i'm using the term justice a little bit differently in my chapter because i want to recognize justice as uh, the judgment that that emerges from the tension between these. But sometimes, yeah, he uses justice. He, he kind of develops a system in which there's a descending set of uh, ideals, right? So love is at the top, then justice, then uh, you get like, oh, okay, um, we've got like equality and uh, <clears throat> equality and what is the other one? quality and liberty that are the regulative principles underneath that. And then we figure out how to apply apply those beneath. And if you just pay attention to that, he almost becomes a rationalist because he's mm-hmm. I, there. Right. He sounds almost like John Rawls sometimes. Right. Um, and you, you have to keep the whole context in view in order to get what's distinctively Niburian about it. That Niebuhr is worried that we only get, hey, <clears throat> and this is always the problem with Niebuhr, right? Mm-hmm. I, uh, so Isidore of Seville once said that, uh, show me a person who claims to have read everything Augustine wrote and I'll show you a liar. <laughs> um, I think, I always think this when I go back to Niebuhr, show me somebody who thinks that they can hold all of the antimonies, all of the tensions that Niebuhr held together mm-hmm. in every thought in their mind in any moment. <laughs> and I'll show you a person who doesn't really understand what's going on. And he's exactly he's exactly right, because we, I don't know, Niebuhr was obviously a genius about these things. Um, but every time I think about one of these particular areas, right, <clears throat> I'll get into it and I'll forget, <laughs> oh, the other things that were going on in the bigger picture that Niebuhr was, was sketching. And I have to keep going back to Niebuhr and rereading him constantly in order to remind him myself of exactly that creativity that is that's there in uh in the paradoxes that he's laying out because it's so easy to just get focused on one part of it that you think you can understand and Niebuhr keeps trying to remind you don't think you can understand it right don't think Mm -hmm. that you're ever done Mm -hmm. don't think that you've ever gotten that and we have to continue to go back in order to expand our minds and try and bring out that creativity in what's possible 
if I can just ask them, how how do we measure then what's destructive or distinguishing what's destructive and what's creative then? Because my 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 bigger thing is you know uh, Niebuhr can say uh, predicate justice is X right, mm-hmm. but he's doing that from experience. He's seeing yeah. all this stuff, so he's not he's he's obviously using symbols and stuff uh, mm-hmm. to place upon experience to kind of explain everything that's going on. But does that actually, I mean, what well, Cliff and I talk about, the symbols of Christianity are co- correlative uh, to experience. Um, but does that actually bring out the truth of experience or are these, are there, is there any substance behind them? Um, or does it just give us ways of pacifying ourselves yeah. So I think his answer there is the same as his answer in these other areas. So how do you tell what's good, what's bad? How do you tell what's yeah. destructive, what's not destructive? And in part, he's going to say, yeah, I mean, this is, you. again, you keep wanting to escape the reality of the human condition that we're mm. in. Mm. How do I recognize what's good and what's bad? Well, I'm stuck between what I have experienced what uh, with the ideas that I've taken in, right, my own rationality, all of that, and my ability to step outside of that and look back at my own definition of goodness and ask critical questions about it and challenge my own Mm -hmm. conception of goodness. And he's not, he doesn't think that we ever get to one final answer to that question. We are always in in our discernment of what's good. We are still stuck in the mess of the human being. I think this is one thing that will make that makes Niebuhr a lot different. Say evangelicals today, evangelicals like Christianity because it gives them the answer, yeah. right? Yeah. Because it provides them the truth that they want, the list of rules that mm-hmm. they want in order to live by, and they believe that religion is useful because what's revealed is the answer. And Niebuhr says, no, as soon as you think what's revealed is the answer, you've gotten the answer wrong. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, because because what we have is always our own view of the good as a person that is stuck between uh, the particularities of the world and transcendence, right? Um, We're always that person. So, as soon as you think you know the answer to that in a way that you don't have to keep stepping outside of yourself, that's that's one of the great dangers, yeah. is that you will then uh, collapse everything into that one conception of the good. So he thinks that that idea is actually kind of anti-Christ in a way, like the idea that you should have the answer. Now, this isn't to say that he doesn't believe that there aren't answers, right? There are answers to these things. But don't think, again, don't think that you're God. Don't think that you're Jesus. Don't think that you're the one who knows all of these things Mm -hmm. and who has the absolute answer to them. Now, again, because immediately we have to tack back in the paradox, uh, we also don't want to believe that we ever don't have any truth that we don't have any ability to uh, recognize what's good or evil, what's destructive or, you know, creative and productive. Um, We want to say, no, we do have the ability to make those judgments. 
And we will make them wrong sometimes, and yet we have to. And that's really, I, I think that's where, where eschatology comes in for him, in that we have to think that God is going to take up those imperfect judgments that we do make, and God is going to perfect them uh, e eventually, like eschatologically, because our, you, you're right, like at the, end, at the end of the day, in order to allow ourselves to make those judgments, knowing that we don't know the answers um, well, we've got to depend upon that uh, in part. And that that gets back to the you know theological virtues because hope and love are tied together in that. And our hope allows us to make judgments even when we know we don't know all of the answers. Well, I love it yeah. because you one of my favorite lines, I, I read it over and over again. Uh, you said, um, as a finite creature, humans are dependent upon that which be, uh, which is beyond them. Submission to the process of public discernment is an acknowledgement of the facet of this facet of human nature. Because of sin, especially when the individual makes judgment alone, there is the potential for biases. And I was like, man, that is so practical. Like that is so, mm -hmm. and it's so characteristic of Niebuhr. It's like you put words to something that like I, you know, read him and read him and read him. And it's like, yeah, that really is a characteristic. Like it's painful to some people sometimes how oh. important that is. Like, like, like Bart was not particularly fond of his... <laughs> use of uh publicity yeah no i i think that i mean it's an extremely painful thing uh for, for me um whenever i mean i think we all like knowing things we all like feeling like we've got it and uh occasionally i mean i i do uh i do tiktok today which is this weird world of uh of like I, I do tiktok videos and i'll oftentimes i'll do critiques of like both atheist and christian arguments on tiktok mm -hmm. and every once in a while somebody comes on and they'll say oh no you got this wrong you misunderstood what this person was saying and if you put it in context it's this and never once have I read one of those comments the first time and been like, you know what? This person is right. I was incorrect and I should yeah. step back. And no, inevitably I read that context and that content and I get, I, my immediate response is no, you didn't understand what's <laughs> going on. Um, and it takes time, right. To, to be able to actually step back and say, you know what? I think that person made a point. Uh, I think that person actually, and oftentimes I had to stop myself from responding to people immediately, which is always a problem in the world that we live in, where immediate response is such a, a possibility. Like in the past, I think that, you know, patience was in part in, imposed upon us, right? Because you couldn't respond to somebody immediately. Um, we have the ability to respond and oftentimes immediately respond out of that knee jerk uh, idea, but publicity is exactly the idea. I'm, I'm not. You're, you're right. I'm going to be wrong, right? I mean, as a matter of fact, the paradox of knowledge is that I know that some of the things I know are things I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's weird, right? Yeah. Because, because there's, I, I know, I just don't know which things that I know aren't things it's, that I know. If I, if I knew that, I could get rid of them, right? Um, but. This is exactly, and it is, and it's a struggle with the ego. I mean, this is exactly, exactly right that there, there's a struggle with the ego that happens when we get called on that uh, publicly by other people. And it's, yeah, no, it's a problem of humanity. 
What you're um, talking about uh, reminds me of the galaxy brain meme of kind of, okay, if you could picture like a little bit of activity in the brain, and that's the undergrad first reading Moral Man, Moral Society and realizing the tension of peace and justice. And then yeah. the next level is like the scholar of Niebuhr, like Kevin, who realizes I can't know all the tensions that are going on in his brain right now. And mm -hmm. then there's the last galaxy brain, which is when you realize Niebuhr doesn't know all the things. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And you're left yeah. at this place of perennial angst and yeah. realizing that you can't know. Yes. I, I wrote uh, an article um, on uh, a Niebuhrian critique of realism uh, or a Niebuhrian critique of his own uh, view of divine action once. And I sent it off to, uh, to Charles Matthews um, for him to read. And he read it and he said, this is great. This is, this is really cool stuff. And he, then he said, I also want you to remember that Niebuhr would never want us to be followers of Niebuhr. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I mean, that is the, that is of course, the, the again, a typical paradox that you find all over the place with great thinkers, right? That um, yeah, at some point, the goal is, of course, to move beyond the person that you're following. Um, and exactly that yeah. that's what they would want, you know, for that. So we're very aware of the irony of naming a podcast and dedicating it to just this one scholar when he would <laughs> yeah. object to it. Yeah, he, he, he would have he would have indulged a little bit, though. I mean, he, he loved yeah, oh, yeah. he loved that the, they 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 made all the keychains and stuff with the, the prayer and everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. I mean, when Niebuhr when Niebuhr talks about the problem of ego, it's a problem he's familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> La last question. I, I just want to get your thoughts on this. I see um, Tom is is coming on now. Um, so a lot and this gets i think to the core of what you're doing here a, a lot of what seemingly attracts you to niebuhr and nature and destiny in particular uh uh to place in a virtue ethics context is what you call quote the space he provides for judgment uh mm -hmm. niebuhr niebuhr calls this i think if i'm tracking with you right niebuhr would call this the uneasy conscience now, can you open this up a little bit and just tell us why this space for judgment is so necessary in virtue ethics specifically? Yeah. So I think it's necessary in virtue ethics because virtue ethics is a quality of the person, a quality of the self that is making the judgments. And so it's not something that is programmed uh into the person like uh, a mathematical calculation. It is not a simple response to feelings, but it is exactly what I think Niebuhr is doing. Um, in order to have a quality of the self that is uh, a self-critical ability to judge, you need to understand what the self is. And I think that's exactly what Niebuhr is doing, is he's opening up an account of the self that can make those judgments and is able to do that. So in that sense, I think he's really um, very centrally working in the virtue tradition um, because he's trying to define a self that is capable of being able to make those moral moves um, that is self-critical, right? Um, so, so yeah, I would say that that's, uh, 
very much, although he has problems with the virtue tradition, at the very least, he's really interested in a dispositional ethic. And he is he's drawing on that. And that's one of the reasons that I think a lot of people have problems with Niebuhr if they go in looking for a formula that they can use in order to be a Niebuhrian, mm. right? Like, what is the what is the the thing that I can follow that will make me a Niburian realist? Well, the answer is there is no one formula because what Niebuhr's trying to do is to get you to recognize that you are a self who can judge every formula that you come up with. And so that's what's really central to what he's doing. Dr. Kevin Carnahan, thank you so much for your time. It was a great pleasure. I uh, can't wait to read the rest of these essays. Um, and to our audience, you guys should go and check out the book and uh, and uh, and buy it and uh, help contribute to to these uh, to these wonderful authors. So th thank you. Thank you again, Kevin. Thank you all. This has been fun. All right. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. I want to thank again our guest, Dr. Kevin Carnahan. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in once again. We hope all is well in your world, and we hope you tune in again next week as we interview the other editor of this book, Dr. David True. If you want to really help us out, and I'm serious about this, give us a, give us a like or subscribe. Uh, share our episode on Twitter, or X as they call it now, Ugh. or Facebook, or whatever social space you occupy. And write us a good review if you're enjoying it. Um, so yeah, seriously, that stuff just really helps, uh, out the show. Okay. Until next time, take care everybody and stay safe out there.